Welcome back to Bible Time. We're continuing our study of the second epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Thessalonican church. Here in verse 9, he says, "...who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power." Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd take this text as we study it, Lord, in our simplicity and Lord, in our, in our humility, Father, before you. This is such a text, Lord, that we tremble before you to even read it, Father, and think about preaching it. Lord, to think of the glory of your presence, the glory of your power, the everlasting destruction of the wicked that you will punish them with, Father. This is a terrifying reality, but Lord God, it needs preached, and we pray for power to preach it, utterance and unction, and I pray, Lord God, that you'd use this message to warn the wicked and to give zeal to your church, Father, to get out and get the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Father, help us in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. So here in the context, we have the Lord Jesus in verse 7 being revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And then in verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We really focused in yesterday's message about the flaming fire of Christ. And the message was titled Christ in Flaming Fire. It spoke of Christ who is fire. It spoke of Christ who is, though he is fire, he's not and this is a ridiculous um, ridiculous thing to even have to state, Jesus Christ is not energy. He is not fire. But he is fire in the sense that our God is a consuming fire. You say, why would you even have to bring that up? Because today people worship energy. And I've actually met a man that worships energy and fire, and he believes that the earth is going to be burnt up with a fervent heat, just like the Bible says, but that that is God and that he will join God when he's burnt. How far can we go from the Word of God? Once we leave the Word of God, things just continue to get crazier and wilder and weirder, and that's just a blending of um, Buddhistic thought and Hindu th- and Hinduistic thought and blending that all together with some kind of Christianity that he's heard of, and he's blended it all together until now he's worshiping the fire that will burn him up and thinks that he will join and become part of that fire. We're going to see some of that everlasting destruction today, and we'll see that that destruction is a sentient, thinking, feeling destruction. (coughs) Now here in our text, it says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. We want to start with that part um, of this text. Let's look at Leviticus 6 and verse 13, carrying over some of the fire from last time. I feel like just dropping the whole thing and going back and studying again and again and again because there's so much here to study. I'm really battling even preaching this. I don't feel like I nearly have enough time studying, but yet I don't have time to study enough to study it out the way that it would need to be studied. This particular verse, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it seems like it could be studied for 40 hours before being preached and still not have been studied enough. And yet every scripture of God is like that. Every, every word of God is pure, the Bible says. The word of God is infinite. It's infinitely deep, though it's not infinitely broad. It's very narrow. It has very specific meaning. It has very specific um, understanding. It has one true biblical, rightly divided interpretation, but yet it is infinitely deep. 
And so we find the depth of this text today is staggering whenever we think of the everlasting destruction. Um, A man was just telling me the other day about talking to young people about eternity and saying, how long do you think eternity is? And they would say, well, um, years and years and years and years. And he would say, and then what happens after years and years? And they would say, years and years and years and years. He says, and then what happens? And they say, years and years and years and years. And the reality is that you can go on and on saying that and never get to the end of eternity. Eternity is without end. Do you understand that today? Eternity is without end. Today, this morning, the sun came up, as we say, though we know that the sun did not actually rise, um, that the earth is rotating, and therefore the rising of the sun is our perspective. Yet the sun rose this morning, and we saw, we can see the movement of the shadows across the ground. We've learned to mark time other ways. We have clocks, and we have watches, and we have computers that synchronize, and phones that synchronize with cell towers and that tell us the exact time and the times and the seconds are ticking by today. Um, This morning, it is roughly 10 o'clock in um, Central Time in the United States of America, and in an hour, it will be 11 o'clock. In another hour, it will be 12 o'clock, but not so in eternity. In eternity, you just are, and your existence is not marked by time. Eternity continues forever and ever and ever and ever. Eternity never ends. Eternity began when, for mankind, whenever God spoke the world into existence, God never began. God always was. That's a fundamental truth of the Bible, and it it is absolutely unable to be scientifically proven. That's why it has to be taken with faith. Now, that does not mean there's not evidence. The evidence that we have that God never was made is the fact that God made everything with the word of his power and that God upholds all things by the word of his power. And we have his word, his testimony that he is everlasting, that he always was and always will be. So we do have evidence, but that evidence is not evidence that we can control. It's not evidence evidence that we can test. It's not evidence that we can repeat. It is a legal evidence and a court of law testimony is legal evidence. And we have the testimony of God that he is and that he always was. And then you have the decision to make. Are you going to believe the testimony of God based on the evidence that he is who he says he is? Or are you going to throw it out because you cannot test the exact thing that he said? You know, most of you um, out there, if you want to eat a donut, you go to a donut shop and you go in and you ask the baker if he has any donuts. He says, yes, these are donuts. And you take him at his word and you buy the donut and you take it and you bite into it, never even wondering if it's made purely out of baking soda and starch or whether it's actually got flour and sugar in it. You don't even think about it. You just take his word that it's a donut. Why would you do that? You see evidence. You see a donut shop. You see a donut baker. You see different things. You see other people going in and biting the donuts and they're not vomiting and they're not throwing the donuts in the trash and they're not breaking glass and throwing tables over and yelling at the donut maker. So you assume in reality that it's really a donut. And you go and you buy it on faith based on the testimony of other people and based on these other things until you have a chance to try it. And that's the way it is with God. You don't get to, you're not going to get salvation. You're not going to get truth if you have to 
validate absolutely everything without taking any of it, you're not going to get to it. But instead, what you must do with God is you must take the truth that God gives you and look at God, the fact that God is, and the fact that God has done things, and look at the observable, testable, repeatable things in the Word of God that prove that God is who He is, and then go from faith to faith. Move from the things that you can experience and see and feel and taste and touch of God through the word of God to the things that are beyond what you can grasp. And eternity is beyond what you can grasp. Eternity is beyond the scope of science. Did you know that today? In fact, science can make guesses about what happened yesterday, but science cannot prove what happened yesterday. Science is only really valid in its in the scientific sense in the immediate present right now. Science can make educated guesses about the future and it can make educated guesses about the past, but it relies entirely on what is in front of you today in the present. You cannot conduct science on past. You cannot conduct science on future. You must conduct science on present. And then we take secondary and tertiary observations from what we have done, the scientific testing we've done, to try and guess what happened in the past and what happened in the future. But the further to the past and the further to the future you get with science, the less you really know what is going to happen because guess what? There's too many variables. It's hard enough to control an experiment in the present and to get it down to the point where you can make truly scientific observations about something, much less to control the um, entire dateless past. God tells us about eternity because God is eternal. And when God tells us about eternal eternity, he's talking about everlasting. He's talking about forever and ever. He's talking about something outside the scope of science, outside the scope of observation. Did you know that by and large, and I don't, I'm not aware of any experiment that's ever been done. Of course, I'm no expert on it. I haven't read every experiment ever done. But I'm not aware of any that's ever been done that did not have time as a factor in it. How many minutes, how many seconds did it take for you to leave that little Petri dish sitting there before you could get your findings? Time is part of science, and it's inextricable from science. If you try and get outside of time, you leave the bounds of science because time is what is what we are bound in, and without time, you cannot really have science, but eternity is outside of time. So now in our day and age, we have people that think that they can tell us about eternity past and tell us about eternity future using a science that is limited and locked into the present. Science is very useful if it be true science, observable, testable, repeatable data that then becomes theses and then theories and then scientific laws like matter can neither be created nor destroyed, which is one of the laws of thermodynamics. And these laws can help us, but they cannot measure eternity past and they cannot measure eternity future and our minds have no way of really grasping what God's talking about whenever he says everlasting fire 
Whenever he talks about everlasting punishment, whenever he says here in our text, everlasting destruction, our minds just completely fail to grasp it. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll just kind of start looking around at the bumblebees and the butterflies and and our neighbor's papers like this young man's doing right over here instead of paying attention because the subject is so big for our minds that it just breaks our ability to think. And then we just give up and we just decide not to think and we sit there not thinking and act like we're smart because at least we're sitting there listening to somebody else who thought. Eternity is forever. Eternity never ends. In eternity, you can count one, two, three, four, five. You can count all the way to quadzillion and you will not be any closer to the end than when you started. I was mowing a field to put up a tent yesterday and the sun was baking my arms and burning my skin. And I was thinking, man, how long is this going to take to finish this thing? And I I just kept going. I kind of look like a cooked lobster today. And I just kept going. But I knew one thing. I knew one thing that comforted me as the sun was baking my skin. And I knew that I was going to have a sunburn. I knew I was going to be burning whenever I went to bed. I knew I would be burning whenever I woke up in the morning. But I knew one thing. I knew it would pass. I knew whenever I was getting sunburnt that I would finish mowing eventually. At the very least, the sun would go down and end all my productivity and cease the continuation of the cooking of my flesh by the rays of the sun. So I knew there was an end to the inflicting of damage by the rays of the sun. I also knew that my body has been made by God with the ability to heal itself over time. So I knew that while I would have a sunburn, I knew that I would heal from the sunburn. So I was willing to keep mowing and continue to get sunburnt knowing that it would end. Now, if I knew that if I continued to get sunburnt, I would be stuck sunburnt the rest of my life, I promise you, I would not have kept on mowing. I would have jumped off that mower and ran for the van and went and got something to protect my arms from the rays of the sun if I had thought that it would even be the rest of my life that I would burn. You say, where are you going with this? Why are you wasting our time? We're not. We're talking about everlasting here. We know we have time and we can see that things will end. You can go through almost any kind of suffering on the face of the earth, knowing that it will end. Whenever my wife was going through labor um, with our last child, uh, she was um, really just having a hard time in in certain aspects of it. And I would just tell her, listen, honey, it's going to end. Listen, it's going to be over. You're going to hold that baby in your arms. You're going to have satisfaction. There's going to be an end to your travail, to your pain. And it came and the end came and the baby came and she held that little child in her arms and she wept tears of gratitude to God for that little baby. And she was so grateful. But when God talks about everlasting destruction in the Bible, he's saying there will never be an end. There will never be an end. Think about just a sunburn. Just a sunburn. If you get a sunburn, if you thought that your sunburn would last the rest of your life, you would do whatever you could do. You would do whatever it took to make sure you never got a sunburn. Am I right today? 
If you would have a sunburn for 70 years, you would say, I will wear long sleeves. I will wear a huge floppy sun hat. I will put on sunscreen. I will make sure I take breaks in the shade. If I have to skip meals in order to not get a sunburn, I'm not going to get a sunburn because I'm not going to live the rest of my life with a sunburn. But we're not talking about 70 years. When God talks about everlasting destruction, he's talking about everlasting That means it never, ever ends. And that is outside the ability of our minds to comprehend. Look at this. We'll look at a few verses today. Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 3. We could talk about this all day philosophically. And we would get nowhere because we cannot grasp it. It's outside the scope of our understanding. The best thing we can do with these kinds of philosophical discussions about everlasting is just to reveal our ignorance and show us how little we really comprehend the word everlasting. It's a word that does not work in our minds. It's a word that is a supernatural word. A supernatural word, everlasting, is not natural. Leviticus chapter 6 here, and in verse 13, starting verse 12, And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. Verse 13, the fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. Go to Isaiah 33. So here the altar that we looked at in Leviticus was to remain burning every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If they had kept the law, if they had obeyed the law and kept the law of God that he gave them through Moses, the fire on the altar in Jerusalem would still be burning today. Now, of course, that in Exodus was the tabernacle, but God relit the fire in Jerusalem in Solomon's temple, and yet the fire today is not burning. They failed to keep God's law. Isaiah 33, 10, God's not going to fail. Let's look at this. Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. Ye shall conceive chaff. Ye shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime. That's chemical burns. It says, as thorns cut up, shall they be burned in the fire. And that's literal flames. So it gives us the analogy of the chemical burnings. It gives us the analogy of physical flames. And then it gives us back here, your breath as fire shall devour you. Speaking about an internal fire. So an external fire, like a chemical burn and an external fire like the flames that would be in a grill that's roasting steaks for a dinner and then also an internal flame where your breath as fire devours you so the fire inside you the fire in contact with you chemical burns being different in that they embed themselves in your skin and those chemicals continue to burn within you within the outer layer of your flesh and then the exterior flames burn on the outside and generating external heat. 
This is a threefold fire for a threefold sinner who has sinned body, soul, and spirit in the sight of God. And it says in verse 13, Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and ye that are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Who is it among us today? Who is it listening to this podcast? Who is it that tomorrow is going to plunge into a Christless eternity and dwell with everlasting burnings? Your breath is fire devouring you from the inside out. Your body, your flesh burning as if covered with lime, with chemical burns and the fires of hell leaping up around your body and baking you constantly in the everlasting burnings of God. God. Matthew 18 and verse 8. We looked at this verse yesterday. We'll look at it again here today. Matthew 18. Verse 8 says, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. The fires of hell are everlasting fires. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, 9, it says that these wicked shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Some people would say that they just burn up. We looked at that yesterday. We touched on the worm that dieth not in Job 25, 6, Psalms 22, 6, Isaiah 66, 24, Mark 9, 44, 46, and 48. And we're not going to those today. But those scriptures, references that I gave you deal with the physical body of a man in hell fire. Go to Isaiah 5 verse 14. Here it's talking about hell again. We're just touching some of the verses on hell throughout the Bible. The Bible's full of scriptures on hell fire. Now, hellfire, see, people say, what's the difference between hellfire and the lake of fire? We'll see that as we run through the final chapters of the book of Revelation here in just a moment. Isaiah 5, 14, it says, Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp. He that rejoiceth and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it, and the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. So the sinners will be cast into hell, which hath enlarged herself. We have a song that says there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. He was buried. He resurrected from the dead by his own power. The Bible says on the third day, declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He ever liveth, the Bible says, to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ is on the right hand of the Father. There is time for salvation today. There is room at the cross for you. But I want to tell you today from Isaiah chapter 5, there's also room in the bowels of hell for you. Hell will never get over full. The prisons across this land are over full and judges often release prisoners 
sinners out on bail or bond or just, uh, just pardon them all together and send them down the road because they simply do not have room to put another man in jail, another man in prison. God does not have that problem. There is room in hell for you and it's not going to get better for you the more people go in. People say, well, I'm going to hell with my friends, but I'm going to tell you, my friend, that in hell you will not have communion with your friends. Go to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10. Revelation 14 and verse 10, we'll look at this everlasting nature of hell fire, and then we're going to look at a man that went to hell and his stories told us in the Bible. Revelation 14 and verse 10, it says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. These have no rest day and night. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever um, up before God. And there they are burning in the presence of the Lamb, in the presence of His holy angels. Go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He had all that he could wish. He had whatever he wanted to eat. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom and the rich man died also. The rich man died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torments. In hell, this man is in torments and he lifted up his eyes. The moment he died, he was in hell. People talk about being carried to hell. People talk about um, being drugged down to hell by the grim reaper. People talk about this kind of stuff, but here in the Bible, this man died and in hell, he lift up his eyes. It was instant. There was no moment of in-between time at all. He went from living to hell. He went from being alive and eating whatever he wanted and wearing whatever he wanted and going whatever he wanted to being in hell. And it happened as fast as the blink of an eye. One minute he was alive, the next minute he was in hell. And when he was in hell, he lifted up his eyes. He still had eyes in hell. And by the way, this is before the bodily resurrection of the damned that we will read about in Revelation. God being our help if we have time to get there. He lifted up his eyes and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now here in hell, he recognized Abraham, though he, as far as we know, did not know Abraham on earth. 
Yet here he recognized Abraham and he said, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. He recognized Lazarus. In hell, your understanding will be quickened. And people seek after knowledge today. In hell, you will have more knowledge. In hell, you will know more about what God has done for you than you know now. In hell, you will know who Abraham is. There are people who are dying today on their deathbeds and they're going to go to hell. Because they have rejected Christ. And when they die, they will know more about the Bible than they ever knew on earth. Possibly more than their own pastor knows about the Bible. Here he speaks to Abraham and he says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Here he is burning in the flame. Here he is sentient, thinking, remembering, feeling, having emotions, having memories, Abraham says, beside all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, Father, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. (coughs) This man was in hell. This man had understanding. This man knew where he was at. This man was tormented. This man knew it was forever. This man knew there was no hope. This man had understanding of his sentence. He was not cast into hell as a man that lacked understanding. He was not cast into hell wondering what was going on. He was not cast into hell to writhe like an amoeba and to not really know that he was there. He was cast into hell with full memory, with full thought processes, with full emotions, with full understanding, and in fact, enlightened understanding. Revelation 18 tells us that God um, will throw down Babylon the Great, which is the city of the great whore. He will cast down Babylon the great and burn it with fire. Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the lamb and the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, the bride of Christ being joined with Christ in heaven. But in Revelation 19 and verse 11, heaven is opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. This is Jesus Christ, the righteous who we preached about last time, Christ in flaming fire. And here he comes with his eyes as a flame of fire to judge the wicked. Chapter 20, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. 
And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not received his, had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. We've studied that out some before as we studied in 1 Thessalonians. We're not going to stop there right now. He says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. (coughs) And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever." And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Listen to these words today. Listen to these words and let them sink down into your heart. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So here, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Jesus Christ has returned at the beginning of the thousand years with his bride, defeats the enemy, the beast, the antichrist, the devil. He binds the devil in the bottomless pit a thousand years. The devil's loosed a thousand years later and gathers the armies of the earth. Christ destroys them and the heavens and the earth pass away. The Bible says um, there's found no place for them. They fled away. Just like it says in Second Peter, the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. And here and in the day of the Lord, that is the concluding acts of the thousand year day of the Lord, a day with the Lord. Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day also there in second Peter, I believe chapter three. And so here the dead are standing before God being judged for their works. The dead raised from the dead, raised from their place, raised from their grave, raised from the ocean depths that they sank in, raised from the dust that they returned to, raised in their soulish state from hell itself, rejoined with their resurrected body, standing before the almighty God, Jesus Christ. Christ the righteous to be judged according to their works. And every one of them here is cast into the lake of fire. It says in death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there they are cast into that lake of fire. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This final destruction of the enemy of the, of all those that hated God happens from the very presence of the Lord. 
Lord and from the glory of his power. Here standing before the God of heaven and earth. Here standing before Jesus Christ the righteous who died for them on the cross of Calvary and was buried and rose again the third day. Here standing before Jesus Christ the Lamb of God. They will be judged and found guilty when all their works are judged in the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. They'll stand there in awe. They'll fall on their faces in awe before the glory of the power of Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who would have saved them. And at the last moment, they'll be cast forever and ever into the lake that burneth which with fire and with brimstone, which is the second death. And there they will burn with everlasting burnings in the lake of fire who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Go to Matthew 25. You can hold your place in Revelation. Lord willing, we'll be back there. Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to verse 41. Again, I gave you those scriptures on the worm, dieth not, look it up. Job 25, 6, Psalms 22, 6, established the use of the worm in biblical typology as the body of death, the fleshly fallen nature of a man. Psalm 22, 6 being Jesus Christ becoming a sinful man for us. Not that he sinned, but that he who knew no sin became sin for us by taking our sins on his own body on the tree. And then Isaiah 66, 24, Mark 9, 44, 46, and 48 deal with the worm dying not and the everlasting life, if you can call it that, of this body of death that is kept alive to suffer in the torment of everlasting fire. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He says it again there in verse 46, and these shall go away, get this right here, into everlasting punishment. Everlasting means it does not run out. If you had a a jar of syrup to pour on pancakes, if you had a box of sugar and you were sprinkling it out, and every time you used it and set it back up, it was just as full, it would be an everlasting box of sugar. It would be an everlasting jar of syrup. What you just add in whatever you want there. If you had a jug of water and you would pour a cold cup of water for someone to drink and the jug was still just as full as when you poured out a cup and you poured out a hundred cups of water out of one pitcher and it was still just as full, that would be everlasting. It would continue to continue. And nothing that ever was done would ever take away from the fullness of the, re- of the intensity and of the supply of that thing. And here, it's the punishment is that thing that we're talking about. Everlasting punishment. He didn't say everlasting fire that will burn you up and then the fire will burn for eternity as it reburns your ashes over and over again. He says everlasting punishment. That means that one minute in hell, you will be being punished and 10 minutes later, your punishment will not abate. And 10 years later, your punishment will not abate. And 10 million years later, your punishment will not abate. And 10 quadzillion years later, your punishment will not abate. And you multiply that to the power of infinity because it will never abate. 
Day one in hell, you'll burn just as hot as day 10,000 in hell, and there is never any relief that can ever, ever be expected. The devil's telling me right now that nobody's going to listen to this. This is too far out, but it's in God's word, and it's true. The devil's telling me right now that I'm wasting my time. I'm spinning my wheels. This is too far out, but I'm going to tell the devil he's a liar. And the Lord rebuke thee, Satan, in Jesus' name. Even the Lord rebuke thee. Is not this a brand that is plucked out of the fire? Praise the Lord. The fire of God will burn forever, and those who go to hellfire will burn with everlasting punishment, the Bible says. They will maintain a sentient existence that the Bible calls the second death. You say, hey, how can they be alive if they're dead? If you would just read Ephesians chapter 2, you'd find out that if you are breathing on this earth, you are walking dead right now. God has already declared you to be dead if you're lost in your sins. And these will go into a sentient existence in hell. Just like today, we have a sentient existence amongst the curse. I want you to think about this for just a second. Imagine that you had to live in a cursed body that continued to age for a million years. That you would continue to get degenerating diseases, but that your body would just never quite cease to exist. And that you would never lose consciousness but that you would have all of the curse of aging, all of the diseases that face man, all of the problems, all of the heartaches, all of the difficulties that ever faced anybody for a million years of this life, this type of existence, this type of human existence. And most people would say, let me out of that. I don't want part of that kind of a hell on earth. But what we're talking about is not just living in a sin-cursed body on earth for a million years. We're talking about living in a sin-cursed body. The same body that you are listening to this message to in right now. Your body will be raised again from the dead. And if you have gone without the Savior, without the blood of the Lamb, and you go to the judgment seat of uh, there at the great white throne of judgment, your body that you are listening to this message in will be cast into the lake of fire where God will sustain it supernaturally so that though you would wish that you could cease to exist and burn into ash, though you would cry out with strong cries and tears that God would cease your existence, yet you will never die. You are made in the image of God. And God is an eternal being. God always was. And God always will be. And you were made in the image of God. God did not design you to cease to exist. God designed you to be an eternal being. But if you rebel against the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the text said in the verse preceding this verse, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that obey not the the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, your body, your soul, your spirit will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Job 21 says the wicked is reserved unto the day of destruction. Go to Romans 2. <coughs> Romans 2, 8 through 9. He says, speaking of those that find eternal life in verse 7, then he says in verse 8, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, 
Do not obey the truth. Disobedient to the truth, going my way to God, going my church's way, my religion's way, my cultural way to God. He says to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. Now there's two things here that we want to zoom in on at the end of our verse here that these will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. There's the one and from the glory of his power. There's the second. We touched on those and how these will be fulfilled. This verse will be fulfilled in its entirety and its completion at the great white throne of judgment found in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. But what I want you to think about for just a moment is what that actually means to lose the presence of the Lord. Psalm 1611 says, in thy presence, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In Revelation 21, we find more about the presence of God. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them. That's his presence. And be their God. And look at the benefits of the presence of God. Look at verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We'll go back there to Revelation 21 and check some things there um, here in just a moment. But it's, it goes on with this great Jerusalem coming down from heaven and the details of it and the glory and the honor of the nations being brought to it. Chapter 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it. And on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Before we go on any further, I want to take a look at some verses here in Exodus. Run over there to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to see here a contrast, and then we're going to go back to Revelation. Lord, help us to get these scriptures um, all in today that you want us to get in. Exodus chapter 20, here you have people in their sin standing before God, and you have Moses who's been purified by God. And in verse 18 of chapter 20, after God thunders on Mount Sinai, and God himself spoke the Ten Commandments there to the whole multitude of Israel. Read in Deuteronomy, and you get the very clear and indisputable fact that all of the people of Israel heard God say these words, and they did not just hear Moses say them. But they heard God himself utter these things. Verse 18, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, fear not for God has come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. 
Moses drew near. The people drew afar off. Moses drew near. Go to um, Exodus 25 and verse 21. Who shall dwell among the everlasting burnings? Who will behold the king in his beauty? Afar off, who will come into the presence of the Almighty? Exodus 25 and verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. You've got two things here. You have grace and truth. The Bible says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and you got the mercy seat which is where Jesus Christ took his blood to pay the price for your sins and satisfy the just demands of a righteous and a holy God in heaven and make a way for you to enter into heaven through his blood and through his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary but in the ark he says thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee that's the word of God and I'm telling you today the way to God is through the grace of God and the grace of God is only available through the word of God, through the truth of God. You've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to believe the gospel. You've got to believe the Bible. You've got to believe the word of God. If you're going to please God, there's no other way. He says here at the mercy seat, they're going to put the testimony that I shall give thee in the ark and there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So there above the mercy seat is the place of communion with Almighty God. Go to Exodus 33. We find that the people in Exodus 32 had disobeyed the commandment of God. They had turned aside after vain things that did not profit. They went after false idols. They thought they could go their own way. They thought they could get their own God. They thought they could get to heaven their own way and God judged them and here they are having broken God's law and Moses is interceding before them in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way. I hope you're paying attention today. I hope you're listening today. This is the way that God has made for you. There's no other message more important on the face of the earth than what's being preached right now. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here, now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. And look at God's answer here in verse 14. And he said, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. The presence of God is the reality of salvation. Salvation without the presence of God is cheap and superficial and will not stand the test of the judgment. But salvation that is the born again nature, the new man being born again by the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God moving in and dwelling in that man. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost moving in and taking up residence inside that man. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The presence of the Almighty is what marks the saved from the lost. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Moses was saying he would rather die without food and without water on old black Mount Sinai than take one step without the presence of the Almighty. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? How is anybody going to know that I'm truly yours? How is anybody going to know that I belong to you? Is it not, he 
says in verse 16 that thou goest with us, so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. We've got two things here in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. After it says that they'll be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, that's the first, and from the glory of his power. And here Moses says, after beseeching God for the presence, he beseeches God for the glory. The presence of God is salvation. The glory of God is your sanctification. The presence of God is when God moves into you. The glory of God is whenever God gets on you and fits you to be his witness. He says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Do you see what he just said in verse 19? All my goodness pass before thee in thy presence is fullness of joy we've talked about the everlasting destruction we've talked about the pain we've talked about the flame we've talked about what damnation means eternal separation from god though is is beyond what we've talked about We've talked about the horror of hell, but now we're talking about the reality of missing out on the Redeemer. We're talking about what it means to lose the Savior and know, and be separated from the Savior who died for you on Calvary. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, while I pass by, and I will take mine hand, I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, 34 verse 1. And I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest and be ready in the morning and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for thine inheritance. And he, that is God, said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do. That was ultimately fulfilled. He goes on and talks about driving out the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite. That is all a picture of Christ coming back in power and driving out his enemies before him. He says, it is a terrible thing that I do. 
It is a terrible thing that I do. I will come in your presence. How did Moses find grace? By getting in the presence of God and humbling himself before God. It wasn't because he was holy. It was because he believed God. It was because he believed God. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3, it says that there in the presence of God, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now here in, this, in the word of God, what you have here in the presence of the Lord, the fullness of joy. You have every comfort, every joy, every excitement, every thrill that has ever been known to man purified, washed clean, intensified, everything good. All my goodness, he told Moses, will pass before thee. In the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, there's everlasting life, happiness, joy, and peace. But for these who will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, none of these benefits will ever meet their eyes other than if they get to see them in passing on their way to hell to only intensify their sufferings in the lake of fire. You say, that's a vindictive God. Yes, He is. He's a God of vengeance. And He's going to take revenge on you. You say, I don't like that kind of a God. Well, He's going to judge you whether you like Him or not. He's going to judge you whether you think He's right to or not. He's going to judge you whether you think it's fair or not. You say, well, what about all the people that never had a Bible? What about them? If they do not repent and believe the gospel, the Word of God says they will be cast into the lake of fire. You say, that's not fair. And I tell you today, it doesn't matter if it's fair or not. God's going to do it. You say, I'll never serve a God like that. Then you'll burn because He's God. And whether you acknowledge him or God is not today or not today, you will someday. And someday you will see your folly. Someday you will see your foolishness, but it will be too late because everlasting destruction means everlasting destruction, everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. The Bible says in chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 8, the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Chapter 21, verse 27, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then again, in verse 11 of chapter 22, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. If you want to go on in your ways, you go right on. That's what God says. He gives you permission. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, Come. 
and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I sent testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.